Let me, uh, let me pray with you for a moment before we look into God's Word. Kind Father, it's just deeply reassuring to know that we have the champion of heaven that has aligned himself with us, that you are for us and not against us, Lord Jesus that actually it tells us in the book of Ephesians that, that we're in the throne room with you because of Christ. As Brian said earlier, Father, not because we deserved it or we earned it, but because you gave that to us. And you give us that standing of who we are in Christ. So thank you for that. Thank you for your word. And as we consider it now, we invite you to speak into our life as only you can. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Today we're in week number five of six weeks in a series in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, some people call it, and I've entitled it Retune, Retune, and the idea is, is that, that this is a redemptive book in the areas of sex and sexuality and marriage, that in Genesis chapter three we made choices that uh, alienated us from a holy God, but also had ramifications in our relationship, and in particular in the married area for those that are married. And this is a redemptive word from God about these issues. And it's a whole series. There's 23 love poems between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. And we've been looking, um, in the first couple of weeks, we looked at the idea of attraction, that it's more important to become what God would have us become than to choose the right person. And so if this is our God's call for us to, to date and to be married, and certainly that's not the case for everyone, but if that is his call, what are those kind of things that he wants to build into our life? And that's even more important than who we choose. Then in the third week, we looked at the idea of pursuing, and we said in all stages of life, how do we pursue that person? How do we deepen in relationship with that person? Last week, we looked at their honeymoon together because this book is written, and depending on what part of the book you're in, either I'm guessing just before they're married or early in their married life. And so last week, we looked at their honeymoon in, in chapter four, and today, the lovebirds get into a fight. And so we're going to talk today about them's fighting words. And it doesn't matter how great your relationship is, how great your romance is, or how great if you're, if you're a single person that relationship with the co-worker is or that friend. doesn't matter how great or how deep a relationship is. If there's a level of honesty in that relationship, there's going to be fights at times, right? You know, she's the kind of person that likes to get to things early. He's the kind of person that's really very quite creative when it comes to deadlines. And this causes some headbutting. She is a spender. He is a saver. He is a morning person. She is a night hawk. One likes to, when they go on holidays, one likes to lay on the beach and read a good book. For the other one, that's just insufferable. They might do it for a few hours, but they want to go out on adventures and, and different things like that. And these kinds of things, and of course so many other things, eventually causes some friction and the fight is on. 
And I don't know about you, but testifying as a person who's part of the human race, I find myself, I can get into the most dramatic fights over the silliest of things. And sometimes we, well, you know, we'll fight about something and we don't even remember what it was we were fighting about to begin with. And so today we're going to talk about fighting fair and how to reconcile our differences in our relationships, whether we're married or not. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Song of Songs. Just again, right in the middle of your Bible, to the right of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, or to the left of, the, of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, any of those books. And it's a little eight-chapter book, Song of Songs, chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 8. So Solomon says this, he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. My sister, they're not related, but this is just an expression that they would commonly use. In the NLT, it's translated my treasure. And that's, that's a good idea to keep in mind there in that verse. My treasure, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And then some friends weigh in and make a comment on their relationship and say, eat, O friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. Then she speaks and she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. And he says to her, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And she says, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Then she says, my lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I rose to open the door for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. I looked for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak. She says, those watchmen of the walls. O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. And so the lovebirds have a fight here in the opening verses of chapter 5. And the bottom line is that we all do at points in our life. Healthy couples, however, learn to fight clean. Healthy friendships, if you're in a friendship with someone, you will learn, if it's going to be healthy, you will learn to fight clean. Unhealthy couples fight dirty. Unhealthy friendships fight dirty. Healthy couples will fight, and maybe it doesn't always begin this way, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking, even though I'm fighting with this person I'm in relationship with, my goal ultimately is resolution with them. I don't want to push them away. I want to be closer to them. I want resolution. Unhealthy couples fight for victory. I want to conquer this situation. I want to conquer this person. I want to win. And of course, with that kind of approach to a fight, it, even if you conquer and even if you win, you actually both lose. If that's your heart going in. And we want to learn to win together. 
even if someone's wrong in the argument. We win together. And so the two newlyweds in last week, they can't keep their hands off each other because they're deeply in love, but one day they get into a tiff, they get into a scrap, whatever you want to call it, and it says in verse 2, listen to what she says, listen carefully, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And so she's been waiting for him. She's hoping that he's coming. And in the opening line, she's saying, I I keep falling asleep, or I kept falling asleep waiting for him to come. And you know how that is when you're waiting for something to happen, but you're really tired, and it's getting late, and I'm guessing here that it's, you know, late at night or even early in the morning, because later when she goes out and the watchmen have been going around the city and they find her. So maybe it's 11 at night, maybe it's 1 or 2 in the morning, we don't know. We know it's late, we know it's dark. And she's waiting for him, hoping for him to come, but she keeps drifting off to sleep back and forth. She's falling asleep, but my heart is set on waiting for him. And so she's tired. And eventually, he comes knocking after he's done doing all the stuff he's been doing, and he's looking for some romance. And remember from previous weeks, this has been her heart's desire too. She says in the opening chapters, strengthen me with raisins. Give me handfuls of raisins. And back then, and even now, if you Google it, you'll see many people consider raisins an aphrodisiac. And then there's various and numerous romantic positions that are described and elaborated on all throughout this book. Later, a couple of different places, they say even in chapter 4, they talk about physical intimacy, about sexual intercourse between husband and wife all night long. And so here he comes, and he's expecting some romance, but he's been really busy, he's been working, he's been preoccupied, he's been out with people. It says here, the idea is that he's been sweating because he's been busy at whatever, and it's hot in the Middle East. But now he's finally done the stuff that he was doing, and he wants to be with her. And initially, she is waiting for him. She, she's kind of, like I said, drifting in and out of sleep. But in verse 3, listen to what it says. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? So she's gotten tired of what, Like, she's just so exhausted, she's tired of waiting. And she's finally said, okay, I guess he's not coming. He's busy doing whatever. And so I'm taking off my robe, I'm taking off my makeup, I'm putting on my mud pack or whatever she is, she does, she washes her face, washes her feet, all the things she does to go to sleep for the entire evening. And all of a sudden there's a knock at the door, I'm here sweetheart, and she sighs, Maybe she says it out loud. We don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe she says it under her breath or whatever. Do I have to get up? I'm really zonked. Do I have to get my feet dirty on this dusty floor here in the Middle East? And I'm going to have to wash my feet again later, and that'll wake me up, and maybe I can't get back to sleep. And she was in the mood, but now she's so tired, she's not in the mood anymore. And this is real life, isn't it? A couple that are in the mood, then life happens, or this happens, or that happens, and one of them's in the mood, and the other isn't. And he comes, and he says, hey, your Romeo is here, and she says, I'm no longer your Juliet. I want to go back to sleep. Sorry, 
Thank you for playing. What are, what are two of the, the root causes of conflict that we see in these opening verses? And this isn't an exhaustive list, okay? But we see two root causes of conflict that we have either in marriage or in dating or just in friendships with other people. The first one is this unmet expectations. Again, not a, not a total list of all these things, but unmet expectations. Human beings never totally measure up to our expectations of them. She's expecting him home earlier. She's looking at her watch or looking at her iPhone, checking the time. Where is he? He hasn't even texted me. He is in so much trouble. He is dead when he gets home. But now she's tired and she gets ready and she goes to sleep. And then he shows up. And for both of them at this moment, there is unmet expectations. And whenever we deal with other human beings, this is reality. At times, and in fact quite frequently, people let us down or we let them down. And, and there can be a number of reasons for this, right? One of them, and perhaps the most common, is just we make sinful choices. And so we hurt someone, we disappoint someone, we let someone down because we have made choices that are sinful in nature. Sometimes it's quite innocent. Sometimes it's based on how we have been created by God and how we're gifted. And so we serve in a certain way. They were expecting us to serve like this because this is what they've been used to. But we're serving like this because this is how God created us. And so it's not that we were trying to hurt them. It's just a byproduct of who we are. A third reason and could be that it was just how we were raised. And we were raised in a home where, where we saw things done in a certain way. And so this is how we think things should be done. And that's how we approach life. And they were raised in a different set of circumstances, and they expect it to be different than it is for you. And so you're together, perhaps you're dating or you're married or whatever, and, you're, and the one person's going, well, you know, my experience growing up is there was a person in the house that just fixed all these things, and I didn't have to worry about this kind of stuff, and you're pretty incompetent. You can't even really pick up a hammer right, and I'm sort of disappointed in you. And I'm used to it happening like this, and you don't do that. Or the next person says, well, you know, I'm used to when I came home at the end of the day, like having, there, there'd be food ready to eat, and you don't know how to boil water very well, and so we have to eat out all the time or whatever. Or I, you know, maybe we pray together, but I really thought we were going to study the Bible intently together, you know, four nights a week for an hour together or whatever. And that wasn't the way you were raised. One person thinks, well, there, there was just going to be, there's going to be way more, I thought there would be way more physical intimacy, more romance in our relationship. And the other person operates at a different speed with that. The other person thought, I thought there was going to be way more talking. I thought there was going to be more transparency in their rela our relationship, more sharing, more time together. The way I like to be loved is through quality time. And, and they're more of a person that likes to receive thoughtful gifts. And so there's these unmet expectations, sometimes because of sinful choices, but sometimes just because of how we were created. And tensions begin to rise. I think about Debbie and I, and there, there's been, you know, we have a great marriage, but there's been lots of bumps along the road. And one of the biggest ones, ironically, was right when we were first married. I remember this very vividly. And, 
I'm sure she does too. And it was just based on how we were raised. And so when it came to how we would relate to our in-laws, to our mother-in-law and father-in-law, both of us had been raised quite differently. And one had been raised that you would call your mother and father-in-law mom and dad. The other one had been raised that that was very disrespectful to your biological parents. And so you would call them by their first names. And that was a sign of respect. But trust me, this caused some serious bumps and some real animosity and uh, elongated discussions together. And so there was just different ways of being raised that caused these things. I remember, I, especially when we were first married, I was really a night hawk, and she was a morning person. And so there's just these things that you have to process together. And I don't know what it's been like for you. But you will come across this if you haven't already. Human beings let us down. And it may hit you at a very deep level. And you're thinking, if you're married, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Maybe you've been married for quite a while and you're thinking, oh, I'll just stay with that person for the sake of the kids. But one day you wake up and you have this epiphany and you realize because of the choices we've both been making, oftentimes we're not honest enough, we blame it all on the other person, but because of the choices we've been making, we've sort of, you know, evolved or de-evolved down to just being roommates, sharing the bills, sharing the room, but really quite distant. You're thinking, you're not the person I thought you were going to be. And we have these unmet expectations. And both Solomon and the Shulamite, uh, early in their married life, have some unmet expectations here in verses 2 and 3. So another, another source of conflict is, and again, not, not a full listing of things here, but another one that I see in this passage is just plain old self-centeredness. Solomon comes, he thumps his chest and says, I am Tarzan. You are Jane. Let me in. And she says, I am tired. I waited for you. I was patient, but I just kept falling to sleep. And so I've gotten ready for bed. And, at this, and I don't want to have to be bothered to get up and go, you know, and you didn't bother to call or send a runner or whatever. And so at this point, at some certain level, there's some selfishness going on, self-centeredness. I want this. They want that. And we have a problem. And this happens in so many ways in a relationship. One of the, isn't it? You know, one person comes home from wherever they've been and they're just exhausted and they want to just relax for a little bit, maybe watch TV or be on the computer or something like that. And the other person wants to talk right now. They're the kind of person that doesn't like to wait. They want to talk it out, whatever the deal is, right now. And it's not that the other, the tired person doesn't want to talk. It's maybe they just don't want to talk right now. And he wants to do this, and she wants to do that, and, and there's some bumps over that. And one person wants physical intimacy, and the other person does, but maybe not right at this time. And, and he buys something because he's the spender in the relationship. And she's the person that pays the bills and says, we really can't afford to do this. But her perception is that he's upgrading the technology like every five minutes in the house. And they fight about money. This is what I want. You never do what I want. 
And the bottom line is, is that we can be self-centered people. Now, just on a little side note here, let me just take a little rabbit trail. If you're dating someone and you're fighting all the time, especially in an unhealthy way, have the courage to admit this is really not a good sign. Again, we all have conflict. I'm not saying, in fact, if you've got no conflict, that concerns me too. Because I've said this before, but if you come to me for premarital counseling, I find out you've never had a fight. The first thing I will try to do is get you to fight in front of me. Because we have to learn how to fight in a healthy way, right? Not in a dirty way, but with the desire to have resolution with that person. So if you find you're dating someone and you're, you're finding you're just fighting all the time and it's not really healthy, this is deeply concerning. And some people, I've had people say stuff like this to me, if you can believe it. They'll say stuff like this. They'll go, uh, we're really not getting along at all, so we think we should get married so things will get better. I don't think so. Or as a married couple, they'll say something like this, all we do is fight, and it's quite unhealthy, so I know, let's have a baby together, and that will make things better. Or the next couple says, we are incredibly broke. We haven't managed our finances well. We're semi-depressed as a result of this. I know. Let's go on a vacation to Hawaii and put it on our credit card. And, and we do these silly, self-centered things, and then we wonder why there's a problem. Now, something very curious, at least curious to me, goes on in verse 4. Notice there's this dramatic switch from verses 2 and 3 to verse 4. And it says this in verse 4. She says, My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. And I'm looking at this. I'm looking at verses 2 and 3. I'm focusing on that. They're having this fight, the spat, all this kind of stuff. But now her heart begins to pound for him. In verse 3, it's go away and go pound dirt or whatever. In verse 4, my heart pounds for him. And this deeply confused me. And so I'm reading all the commentators about these verses. I'm checking this out. I'm scratching my head. I'm pondering, what, why did this change from verses 3 to 4? And finally, I consulted some women. And they look at me, you know, you are really a dumb male. The answer is really simple. She changed her mind. No reason. She, ju she just did. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for helping me to understand that. So verse 5 says, I arose. So she gets up. She walks across the dusty floor. I arose to open the door for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with a flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. And so he's taken this really expensive uh, myrrh, this liquid, I bought some of it when I was in the Middle East. I have a little bit of it on a shelf in my office. It's very expensive. And I brought some back as a souvenir. And, and he takes some of it and he rubs it on the door handle. It's a it has a very romantic, aphrodisiac-type fragrance. And he walks away. Gives up. Leaves. Then it says... Finally, she goes to the door in verse 6. I opened the door for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. He heart, her heart sank. So let's just kind of 
play this out in our mind, you know. He's out doing whatever he's doing. He's working. She wants him to come home. She's wishing that he would come home, but she's super tired. He, she, she falls asleep. She gets ready for bed. She falls, she changes her mind, falls to sleep. He comes, he knocks at the door. He wants romance. She doesn't want romance, but then she changes her mind. He leaves, he leaves a gift on the door, and he leaves, and he walks and goes somewhere else. Who knows? And now she's upset. And life happens. Life just happens. This is real stuff. This isn't just some story. This is how life can unfold. And so she, she puts on a robe, and she goes looking for him, and for whatever reason, the guards think, you know, I don't know why, maybe they think she's a threat, maybe there's a curfew, a strict curfew, and she's out after curfew, maybe they don't recognize her, maybe she startles them, and so they start to pound on her, they beat her up, they humiliate her, that kind of stuff, and I was thinking about this, and I thought, this is so very true, that sometimes when we have a small issue, in verses 2, 3, and 4, relatively small issue, right? But when there's a small issue that's left unresolved in our relationship, it can lead to much bigger problems. And we do this. There's a deal, something really bugs us, and we don't have the courage to either humble ourselves when we've screwed up and ask for forgiveness, or to just go lovingly to that person and speak the truth in love and just say, you may not even understand or maybe not aware of this, but this hurt me, this bothered me, this whatever. And so something relatively small becomes much bigger. And so things like this happen. You know, I went out and bought something. And I know that you're worried about the money and you pay the bills, so uh, I was embarrassed by what I did and so I didn't tell you and a month goes by until the MasterCard bill comes, then you see the bill and now we don't trust each other so much. Or I was going to be late and I was late, much later than I said I was going to be, but I just kind of didn't bother acknowledging it. I didn't apologize for what I did. I didn't send a message saying something happened. I can't get out of this. I'm going to be late. And now there's tension that spills over into a variety of areas because something small becomes bigger when we leave it unattended to. So let me give you three really quick, and again, this is not exhaustive, Three really quick ways to sort of help process conflict. Not exhaustive, but number one, I'm going to make the determination. I will respond by the Spirit. Instead of reacting in the flesh, I'm going to let the Spirit of God lead me instead of reacting the way I might initially feel. And so Solomon starts out right, rather than sort of frothing at the mouth, pounding at the door or something. He puts a little love oil on the love potion on the doorknob or whatever. And then he waits for a while, and then, then he leaves. And, and I guess in some ways that's, that's a good thing. In some ways, perhaps not. We'll get to that in a moment. But, but what relationship ever gets better from harsh, mean-spirited criticism? You know, if you think about it, if you go to work tomorrow, if you work outside the home or whatever, or you're not self-employed. You, you go to work, and if your boss is mean-spirited to you and humiliates you, and I'm not talking about 
um, if you need to be legitimately reprimanded, which we all do at times, right, when we screw up. But when, they, when they're mean-spirited and they're hypercritical or whatever, which one of us goes home and goes, I love my boss, and I would do anything for them? Or if our best friend is like that with us, how long will we continue to be their best friend? But in marriage, somehow we have this weird thinking that I can be a mean-spirited critic to the one I'm dating or the one I'm married to, and somehow that'll magically be helpful. You know, it's interesting because if you read in Bible, when it comes to your spouse, we're not really told to change them. What we're really, the, all the emphasis is on, yeah, I pray for them, but I model the things of God for them. And then that perhaps will draw them. It says that, for example, in 1 Peter 3. Don't try to convince, you know, don't try to change them. Model for them. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, there's a number of things there. It says, men, uh, love your wife. Don't, in other words, the idea is don't be harsh to her. Don't be inconsiderate of her. Give your, it, then it says, give yourself up for her like Christ did the church. Ultimate sacrifice. When we didn't deserve it, when we didn't earn it, this is when he goes to the cross. And it says to the wife in verse 22 and verse 23 of Ephesians 5, it says there should be respect for you to your husband. You should honor him and submit to him. And it says in verse 21, if you go back one verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the emphasis is not on me changing them, but rather on God changing me. That's why we took the first two messages in this series to talk about becoming. And so I respond to them in a spirit-filled way, contrary to the way I might initially want to. Secondly, I focus on the good rather than the bad. In Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4, you could read that later, 8 and 9, talks a lot about that. You know, I was reading about um, Billy and Ruth Graham, and of course they're both dead now, but... Uh, when he was at the height of his ministry in particular, he would be away for as much as seven months of the year. And she was asked on the record about this once, and you know, she could have said, uh, oh, it's really hard, he's never here, but we managed to muddle through somehow, you know. But what she did, she didn't say that. Here's what she did say. She said, you know, five months with Billy is better than 12 months with any other man. focused on the good rather than the bad. And if you keep reading, this is what the Shulamite woman, who's a little ticked off with, with Solomon here, this is what she did for him as you keep reading. And we remember that no human being will ever live up to 100% of our expectations. Never, ever, ever. Only God can meet every need we have. And so sometimes there'll be people that'll say, you know, my spouse is only doing 85% for me. And so I'm going to leave them and go and look for that other 15%. And of course, most typically when that happens, they're profoundly disappointed with the 15%. And so I invite you, I challenge you to look for the good. Don't trade in the 85 for the 15. And what typically happens is that when you make that commitment and again, you fall more deeply in love with them than you ever perhaps had before. Thirdly, 
you say, I'm going to talk and not walk. So, so Solomon comes to the door. He knocks at the door. You know, I want to come in. He doesn't force his way in, and he did that right. But if he did something wrong, perhaps it's that he left when there was still an issue on the table. He left when there was these unmet expectations. And he left when there was some issues on the table. And Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 27 talk about this. It talks about well-known verses, in your anger do not sin. So in other words, anger is a neutral thing. It's really meant to motivate us to do the right thing. But we often use it to motivate us to do wrong things. So in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So in other words, some people will look at this and say, you should, you know, if you're having a problem as a couple, don't go to sleep, you know, stay up for 48 or 72 hours straight if you have to, to resolve it. And so what I would put the emphasis on rather than that is don't let a lot of time go by. Sometimes the wisest thing you can do is if you're really hungry and really exhausted and you're having a disagreement, Perhaps the wisest thing is to have a healthy meal and have a little nap and then deal with the issue. Don't let a lot of time go by. You know, if you kept reading, and we're going to be looking in the last chapter to next week, but in chapter 6, verse 11, there's this cool image. It says, I went out to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. New growth. And I know, just because I know human nature, at least a little bit, that some of you are maybe in a real tough place today. But I want to just encourage you that with the help of the Spirit through the power of Christ, there is hope. When people come and talk to me and they're having a deal... This is one of the things I will commonly say. You need to know there is hope. There can be new growth. I challenge you not to give up. God does not want to give up on your relationship. Do not believe the lie that it's hopeless. And if the two will seek the one, I've seen this many times, by his power, he can give you something better than you could ever ask or think. may not be easy, but better than you ever ask or think. And I invite you down that path. Let me, let me pray with you as we conclude. How grateful we are, Heavenly Father, for the, the work of Christ. How grateful we are, Lord Jesus, that because of you, we're never left lacking that you, lead, you really do meet every need. And sometimes we get confused about what those needs are, but you never meet, miss any legitimate need. And for this, we are deeply grateful. And Father, I want to pray for those that are here that perhaps are at an impasse in their relationship, or perhaps they've just let some little things sit there on the shelf that they're not dealing with. I thank you that you're on their side. I thank you that you, you don't want that relationship, that human relationship to end or to dissolve. This is not your desire. Your desire is to bring healing, to bring repentance where it's needed, 
to bring um, uh, restoration and resolution. And I'm grateful and we're grateful that this is the kind of God you are. And that there's really something supernatural about that. So I would pray that we would be willing to receive that which you would give. That you would be willing to do your transforming work in our life. And we would pray these things as we go now and ask them in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I remind you as we...